What a wonderful morning of worship, amen? amen? So about midway into the first song, I kept feeling my watch tapping me. And I was like, who is texting me? We're in worship right now. And finally, curiosity got the best of me, and I looked down, and my watch says, it looks like you're running, should I start? <laughs> and I'm like, it feels like I'm running. I was running out of breath in the first song, but praise the Lord for worship. So this morning, if you happen to be looking at your sermon outline sheet, and you are thinking, Paul, that is easily the longest title I have ever seen for a message, you are probably correct. Now, I'm going to get back to all of that goodness in just a moment, but before I get there, I'm going to share something that may be even stranger than the sermon title. That is, when I first read James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that is our key text for this morning, we're going verse by verse through the book of James. When I first read the text this last week, preparing for today, I wasn't really excited about preaching the text. Now, I know that sounds bad for a pastor to say. Probably sounds worse for a congregation to hear <laughs> before I preach the very text that I'm describing right here. But I, I promise there's a reason why I say that. So let me kind of give some of the explanation. There are certain passages that as a pastor, you cannot wait to preach. If you happen to be going verse by verse through a book of the Bible, you're going to see that passage coming weeks, maybe months in advance. And oftentimes it is a passage that God has used in a profound way in your life, or maybe it has truths or application or encouragement that is so strong, you know at the core of your being it is going to hit home with people on that Sunday, and you are looking forward to it. Every week that you get closer and closer, excitement is growing, and that day comes, and it's like Christmas for a pastor. It's like, it's here. Now's the time. Here's the text. And then there are other passages that they are, let's just say, more cerebral in nature, theological to their very core. They're important, but they might not address anything that people are necessarily wrestling through on that Sunday morning. So if you're wondering what something like that would look like, let's just say I am preaching verse by verse through the book of Matthew, and we get into the genealogy of chapter number one. Now, it's probably not going to be the case that a lot of people are going to be showing up at church that morning saying, if I just knew who the great-grandson of Rehoboam was, it would allow me to relate better with my spouse. Now, that person might be out there. I've just not met him yet. So on those times, you're going verse by verse through that section, we often move pretty quickly because the immediate points of application are just sometimes hard at those moments. Now, we know that text is biblical. We know it's important. It is just as inspired as John 3.16, but it is probably not one of the most beloved texts that you're going to find in Scripture. And then you have what I'm going to refer to as sneaker text. Not sneaker in the sense of what you're wearing when you go to the gym, but sneaker in the sense that from the surface, you don't look overly excited, and then you dig deeper, and it will sneak up on you and surprise you with all of its goodness. That's what we have this morning. We've got the classic sneaker text that we're getting into. So when I first read James 1, 9 through 11, my thought was, how am I supposed to preach a whole message based on that? And then I spent about two days in the text. And my next question was, how am I supposed to get everything out in just one message? And then it hit me. 
I don't have to. <laughs> we could do a twofer on this one. All right, so that being said, we are going to approach this text like we are driving the back roads to grandma's house. We're just going to kind of take some twists and turns along the way. We're not in a hurry. It's a Sunday. So there's going to be a few moments that as you're taking in the scenery, it's going to seem like we got lost along the way. We did not, I promise. Now, sure, we could go fast, kind of take the interstate. But if we do that and your driving is like mine, many times you are going to miss the scenery and lose your sanity in the process. So we're just going to take our time. Here's my prayer, that we get to the end of this text better than where we were when we started. Now, one final thought. I do recognize it is very strange to introduce a text and not actually tell you what's in that text. This is a very strange introduction. But I promise if you pay attention, if you walk with me through it, Lord willing, we're going to get to the other side, and this text is going to be clear, and that sermon title on your page is going to make sense. At least that's what I'm praying is going to happen. <laughs> all right? Go with me in your Bibles. James chapter number 1. We're going to all pile in the proverbial family station wagon and kind of make our way to Grandma's house. So James chapter 1 will be in verses 9 through 11. I'm speaking this morning on the first part of the great equalizer, a wonderful opportunity, and an important question that we all need to answer. And if none of that makes sense, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Let's read verse number nine and following. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your spirit guide us. God, help us to walk away with the exact perspective, the right truths that you want us to receive from this text. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as the sermon title suggests, there is a lot that is happening in this text. I've already shared that we're going to be taking some twists and turns. We're going to be taking in the scenery along the way. But anytime you get into any type of a road trip, best thing to do is to pull out a map and find out where are you and where are you going. So I'm about to give you a four-minute synopsis to help everybody in the room make sure we know exactly where we are in relation to the book of James and what has happened in six weeks as we have gone through chapter one. So James confronts the unethical behavior of Christians and shows how wisdom and spiritual maturity are essential for right living. Wisdom and spiritual maturity. For a believer to do the right thing in the right way at the right time with the right motivation, it is going to require that person to be undivided between their beliefs and their behaviors. They just don't talk a good game. They actually live a good life. That is the essence of what it means to have integrity. What you see is what you get, and what you get is what God desires. That's what the book of James is all about. Now, according to James, it is only going to be the person with integrity who is going to be able to persevere in persecution. 
to effectively resist temptation, to respond obediently to God's word, overcome prejudice, to produce good works, to control the tongue, follow God's wisdom, wait on God, and all of the other pieces that he is going to mention all the way through the book of James. Right living, according to what we find in Scripture, is going to flow out of integrity. And what James keeps pointing back to is integrity comes through spiritual maturity and wisdom. Spiritual maturity and wisdom. Now the question becomes, how does a person gain spiritual maturity and wisdom? And what we've seen so far in chapter 1 is both are acquired in the context of trials. There is purpose in the pain. God uses the trials and challenges of life to remove the remnants of the flesh while also transforming our character into the character of Christ. And because of the fact we know that God is using the trials to mature us and to glorify himself, because of that, we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. We can know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. We can understand and know that when endurance has its perfect result, we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, spiritually mature. That's all of what we have been building through to this particular point. Now, between the moment of somebody being where they are in the trials to the moment over here whenever the the perseverance has had its perfect result and they're spiritual mature, between that moment and this moment, he's saying, if you don't know how to frame the moment right, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know how to respond, he said, verse 5, ask God for wisdom. He will give it to you generously and without reproach. Oh, but listen, there's a right and a wrong way to ask. You are to ask in faith without any doubting. Because the person who doubts ought not to expect anything from the Lord. Now, that's what we have covered up until this point. So here's my thing. Up until this point, almost everything we have described has been very personal in nature. That is, each person is challenged to count it all joy in the midst of their trials. Each person is challenged to persevere in those trials so that they may have their perfect result. Each of us are to let endurance have its perfect result. When I'm struggling with trials, when you are struggling with trials, when we don't understand what we're supposed to do, each of us are to go to God and ask God for wisdom, and he will give it generously and without reproach. It has all been very personal. It has all been between each individual and their walk with God. All of that is good, but listen. Even though the text is personal, God's work in us is never intended to stay with us. It's a personal text, but it's going to have an outward connection. There's something God is doing here that he wants to use out there. The Christian life is not a call to isolation it is not a call to spiritual secrecy. Yes, what God is doing in the midst of your trials is going to be very private, very personal. He's working it out in your life. But the Christian life is not designed to be lived in secret just between you and God. It is just the opposite of that. We are called to be about the mission of making disciples. 
We are called to be about the mission of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are called, listen, this is key, we are called to be salt and light so that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Here's why that's so big. There has to be something in our lives that is seen and desired if unbelievers are to glorify our God who is in heaven. There's got to be something seen and desired. If, if that doesn't happen, if, if the world doesn't see anything different, if the world doesn't even know we're a Christian, oh, and listen, 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 you listen, you listen, listen, okay, okay. If we act like a Christian jerk, the world is not going to be glorifying our Father who is in heaven. There has to be something that the world sees in us. There has to be desired. Like, how did they do that? Like, that's what I want to look like in that moment. There has to be that moment for the unbelieving world to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So we cannot talk about full spiritual maturity. We can't talk about all that God is doing in a person's life and not also mention how what he is doing inside and through our lives is to impact the world on the outside. So I've got a wonderful passage. And when I say we're taking some twists and turns, getting to grandma's house, this is one of our twists. So if you'd like, go over for just a moment, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul is providing this beautiful outline of what it looks like to mature as followers of Christ. And here's what he gives. He talks about the work that God is doing, and there's three parts to this work. So God's first work of grace is salvation. That is the work that God does for you. Okay, it says in the text that whenever we repent of our sins by placing faith in Christ, it says that we are saved by grace through faith. And it's also very clear, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You and I did not save ourselves. It is the gift of God. It is what God is doing for us. Now, God's second work of grace is sanctification. That is the work that God does in us. So if you were to look at Ephesians 2.10, it says, for we are his workmanship, and it says created, or other translations would say recreated in Christ Jesus. That is, as we learn to abide in Christ, as we understand our position in the beloved, as we are abiding, the Holy Spirit of God begins to transform our lives into the character of Christ. If you want a great reference for that, look over at Romans 8 verse 29. So we've seen two works that God is doing. Here's the third. God's third work of grace is service. That is the work that God does through us. So God begins over the course of time to live his mission, his purpose, his, his will in and through our lives. So look at what it says in verse number 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, here it is, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now you've got three different parts of God's work in a believer's life. Salvation is his work for you. Sanctification is his work in you. Service is his work through you. All three parts beautifully outlined in Ephesians 2. Now I promise 
we are still en route to grandma's house. So this is one of those twists that if we take just a moment to see it in the, the broad scheme of things, it allows us to get where we're going better than what we were when we started. So here's my question. What does any of that have to do with James chapter 1? James, if you'll remember, is talking about spiritual maturity. And throughout the Bible, here's what you're going to find. God matures us before he deploys us. He trains. He changes. He works through character. And I don't know if you've noticed, he's not in a hurry. He takes his time. He could plug every single believer into a place of service this afternoon. He could put you in a position of leadership before you get out of this service right now. The question is not, are there needs that we need to attend to? The question is not, can God use you to serve others? The question is not, do you and I want to be used of God? The question has to be, will our character stand up under the responsibilities that come with that service? That is, if we are to be spiritually mature, if we are to do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, with the right motivation, when he puts us in a place of service, listen, so that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven, the question is, are we walking through the process of maturity well? If not, sometimes he says, it's going to take a little bit longer. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, I look back over the course of my life, and oftentimes there's a phrase that goes like this, God hits a moving target. That is, you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. God is so wonderful in that. I look back at some of the things I did five years ago and ten years ago, I was like, I was an idiot. God, why? Why? But God is gracious. And here's the wonderful thing about serving the Lord. God is so sovereign that even in our humanity, he can still accomplish his purposes. But I don't know if we all just want to be in a position of saying, God, just use me at the minimal level. My prayer is, God, one day when I see you face to face, I want to know my life has been poured out. I, I want to know that I've run the race well. I want you to fully use me. And for that to be our prayer, spiritual maturity has to be a focus within our life. So God is going to do his work in us, and he does his work for us. Many times before he does his work through us. Now connect that back to James 1, 9 through 11. In these verses, James applies the maturing process. Everything I just described, he applies the whole idea of he's going to mature us in the midst of trials, and it's never intended to just stay with us. He's doing something that will impact the world around us. He now applies that concept, the maturing process, to two types of believers, those who are poor and those who are rich. And when he addresses people on each end of the socioeconomic spectrum, it also includes everybody else somewhere in between the two. Now, he applies it to the poor, and he says this, glory in your high position. 
To the rich, he says, glory in your humiliation. This word glory is absolutely important. It means to rejoice or to boast. Now, hold on just a moment. How many of you boast and rejoice by yourself? Or do you share that with somebody else? How many of you let God's work in you just stay with you? Or are you willing to tell someone, this is what God's doing. Here's how he's answering my prayers. This is what God showed me this morning when I was in the word. Here's what I've been praying for in my family. And this is how God answered. We share with others what is important to us. So whether a person is poor or whether that person is rich, they are commanded by God to glory, to rejoice, and to boast. But we know it's not boasting self. It's not boasting your accomplishments. It's not boasting your resources. It is boasting who he is. Also, boast in where he's placed you. The poor person, he says, glory in your position, your high position. You're, you're praising God. You're letting others know, this is what he has done for me. This is who my God is. This is the position that I am now at in Christ. Now, let's pause. The previous eight verses, before we got into this one, were all addressing trials. Verse number 12 the verse right after this is also addressing trials. The very first word in verse number 9 is but. It is continuation of a thought that has just been taking place. So what did he just talk about? He just talked about the fact if you are lacking wisdom, ask God. But... You have to ask in faith without any doubting. You're going to have to trust God. You're going to have to have your faith in him that he is going to answer. Now he comes into this and he says, but, once again, he's continuing the same flow of thought. So here's the beauty behind what's taking place here. James shares something in this text that is monumental. It levels the playing field in so many ways. Here's the truth that he wants us to understand. Trials are the great equalizer of life. Listen, trials don't care how much you make or how little you make. They're going to find you anyway. Trials are a part of the human condition. Trials, they, they hit everyone. Trials and temptations, problems and frustrations, they come to everyone because we all live in a fallen world. Rich people and poor people are going to get sick. Rich people and poor people are going to go through divorce. Rich people and poor people are going to face addictions, get sidelined by temptations, suffer emotional pain as there's broken relationships. Rich people and poor people are going to deal with stress and worry and anxiety and pain. Rich people and poor people are going to experience challenges to their faith and hard decisions and natural disasters and tragedies and accidents and uncertainty. And one day down the road, rich people and poor people are all going to be facing death. Now, somebody might say, mm, Paul, I, I kind of get where you're going with that. But poor people face more trials with fewer options, and they feel it more. Okay, I get that. But let's pull back from this conversation for just a moment. Here's the telling question. How do you define poor or rich? 
those terms are relative based upon our context. According to the 2018 Global Wealth Report, to be in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world, it requires someone to have a net worth of $93,170. That is through your bank accounts, through your pension, through your retirement accounts, through the equity that is in your home, through all of your other assets, if all of that adds up to $93,000, you are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. Here's another one. If you can pull together $4,210, if you put it all together, everything that is a part of your net income and net worth, $4,210, you are wealthier than 50% of the world's population. The definition of rich and poor, it often depends upon what country you're in, what state you're in, what city you're in, and for that matter, what side of town you live on. All of those things change. Now, somebody might say, Paul, I don't care what statistic you're talking about. I know I'm in the poor category. All right, well, maybe not. Listen to this. According to the World Resource Institute, the international poverty line since 1990 has been just around $1 a day. It's actually $1.08 a day. Get this. According to the same report, 85% of the world's population lives on less than $30 a day or $10,900 annually. Two-thirds of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day or $3,650 annually. 10% of the world's population lives on less than $1.90 a day or $693 annually. If your income as a single person is more than $11,000 a year, you're better off financially than 85% of the world's population. You might not feel rich, but 85% of the world's population would swap places with you tomorrow if they had an opportunity. Now, why in the world would I bring all of that up? Because it's easy to read a text like this and to immediately Americanize it and say, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. I don't know if you all knew it or not, this book wasn't written to just Americans. It's for the world. So if we're going to understand this, we got to pull outside of what we're facing here and say, on a broad scale, what does that look like for the world? Can I preach this same text in Bangladesh? and have the same ideas coming from the people? Can I preach it in India? Can I preach it in South America somewhere? If the word of God is true, it's the same truth regardless of where you preach it. We've got to come back and say, okay, maybe I'm included in the rich category, and I never saw myself in that before. Regardless of how you define the terms, where you see yourself on the socioeconomic spectrum, listen, James' instructions are exactly the same. Verse 9, he says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. He doesn't give an amount of what 
humble circumstances are. He, he just kind of leaves that up to whoever is reading. Whoever is of humble circumstances, glory in your high position. He's talking to a group. If you'll remember, chapter 1, verse 1, he's talking to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Many of those are Jewish believers who, because of their faith, have now been sent to other parts of the country under persecution. They lost jobs. They lost homes. They lost support networks. Very likely that anybody that's reading this letter would have been considered poor by those standards. And he basically tells that person, he says, your financial situation might look uncertain, but I want you to boast in, rejoice in your high position that is in Christ. They are to rejoice in that position. A poor believer, listen, a poor believer may be seen by some as the scum of the world, 1 Corinthians 4.13. But that individual is greatly loved by God. A poor believer might be financially poor, but they are spiritually rich. They might be pushed aside by men, but they are received eternally by God. They might not even have a roof over their head on this earth, but there is a mansion that is waiting for them in heaven. It is only, it is only, oh, listen, listen. It is only a spiritually mature believer who can look at desperate circumstances and say, I'm going to glorify God anyway. That, that doesn't happen by itself. It happens because they have been sifted through the process. They are being refined by the process. It's somehow in the trials. They keep finding out, he's enough. He's enough. I'm still here. I've still got my mind. I've still got my sanity. He's kept me this far. There's heaven waiting on the other side. That individual, if they can focus on it and frame it right, he says, in that moment, Glory, glory, rejoice in, share with others about your position in Christ. Mm. <laughs> I'm about to lose it up here. I'm going to tell you, there's some mornings I'm like, it's getting hot. I'm about to like strip off the jacket and just run with it over here. But I'm going to tell you, these truths will set you free. And here's the thing. People think when God gives me something, I'll praise him. If you didn't praise him before you got it, you won't praise him once you have it. Wherever we are, we've got opportunity to praise him. So for the poor man, as he encounters trials, he is to submit to God and rejoice that the true riches can never be taken away from him. Trials, oh, this is good. Trials may take his home, may take his possessions, may take his health. But somebody who's spiritually mature they understand this world is not my home. I'm not laying up treasures on this earth. And there is a new body waiting for me on the other side. They can rejoice and praise God. And listen, when we start living like that, that's the part that the world around us is like, I don't understand what you're doing. That doesn't make sense. If I were in your condition, I would be giving the woe is me, all pity party going on. I would be saying how everything's bad. But this person right here, they're like, my God's better than that. You don't see what I see. So here's why this is so important. When believers do not live with that mindset, 
we lose our credibility before the world. When we talk about the glories of heaven, and yet we act like this earth is it, there is a division between our beliefs and our behaviors. So verse 10, it now says, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Okay, now this one is one where the rich man is to remember that he too has a date with death. It says like flowering grass, he will pass away. This is not even a text describing the fact that his wealth or possessions will pass away. This one is specifically addressing the fact the rich man is going to pass away. When the reality of death is certain for all people, when we understand that eternity is long for all people, when we recognize there is a righteous judge who is waiting on the other side, those thoughts should humble any of us. One day, we will all stand before our God without our bank accounts attached. And the only question that is going to be of importance is, what did you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Did you live for self or did you die to self? Were you about the mission of God or were you about building your own kingdom? As a steward of God's resources, did you steward this earthly life well? All of that's going to be humbling. So for the, both the rich person and the poor person, we understand trials are coming. At both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, he says they are to glory in, rejoice in, but he talks about that position in Christ, looking towards what is waiting on the other side. Regardless of wealth, the only thing that ultimately matters is a person's position in Christ. When that reality hits, it becomes painfully obvious. The only resources you can actually count on are not the resources of this world, but only what is found in your relationship with him. Now, here's my question as we close. How are you reflecting upon and glorying in your eternal position in Christ? Do you give it any consideration at all? It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or anywhere else on the spectrum. The only resources that ultimately matter are those who are connected to your position in Christ. You may think, Paul, it is hard for me to praise God when I have nothing. I, I understand. But our trust is ultimately not in what we have, but in who has us. We're called to trust him. There is nothing like trials to bring all of these pieces back into focus. Trials, listen to this, force the poor to look above their circumstances to who they are in Christ. And trials will force the rich to look beyond their resources to who they are in Christ. Trials become the great equalizer in perspective. Listen, I didn't say for a moment your life looks the same here. What I'm saying is there is a equalizing part that trials bring, helping people focus on the fact that it's ultimately where we're positioned in Christ. So for those who their head is down, your heavenly father would say, lift it up 
and glory in your high position in Christ. For those whose head is high, he would say, humble yourself because wealth in this life is not going to last. It's ultimately about who has you in eternity. So where is God wanting to apply that message in your life today? Where have you been saying, I'll praise God when he answers this need? Where in your life right now have you been saying, I've got enough and I'm going to be okay? And you're not even considering the fact that God is your source. For that person, I want to encourage you, humble yourself before God and remember to rest only in your position that you have in Christ. When we come back into this text, we're going to pick it up. We're going to see how wealth, according to Proverbs, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. If you happen to have looked at your financial accounts in this last week, you don't need a better illustration of wealth that is here today and gone tomorrow. If you're depending on that, you're setting yourself up for a failure. Ultimately, it's about who has you. If you would, bow with me for prayer. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Everyone in this room right now is going to find themselves facing different types of trials and waiting on different pieces from God. And sometimes it is unbelievably hard to see exactly what God would have us to do in the moment. If that's the case in your life right now, I cannot encourage you enough to follow the advice of verse number five. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. He will give it generously and without reproach. For those right now that are in the room and you've been wrestling through like issues of economics and issues of position and issues of worth and feeling as though you are less of a believer because you're not in a place financially where you would like to be, or for that matter, somebody who thinks that they are more of a believer because of their position financially. My question would be is, how would you maintain that position before a lost and dying world? How would you, if you are financially blessed, tell a believer who's about to give their life for their faith that if they just had more faith, they would have the blessing that you have? Or how would you share with somebody who is going through unbelievable difficult times that God is enough? We're all going to face trials. We all face problems. The question is, what would the world see in the midst of those trials and problems? So in just a few moments, our Pastors and some of their wives are going to be at the front. Counselors will be at the front. We're going to open up a time of invitation. There might be people in the room right now that you need to take care of business with God. It's either that God is saying, lift your head, or he might be saying, humble yourself today. It might be that you have put a stipulation on your praise. Say, God, I'll praise you when? Don't ever put a stipulation on praise. Just praise him. We all have been blessed with far more than we ever deserve. 
So wherever God is leading you, what he's working into your life today, I'm going to encourage you to simply respond as the Spirit prompts you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truths of your word. Thank you, Father, that as we go further and further into Scripture, there are so many layers, so many pieces, so much truth and application. God, help us to have your perspective when we walk through it. Lord, would you meet with us in such a personal way that each person in here knows exactly how this message is to be applied to them. God, will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? The invitation time is open. Simply respond as God prompts you.